existence and our hearts and our minds, would you overcome distractions? I pray that we would lay hold of the truth and the beauty of your word that you have revealed to us. Pray that the, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My first experience with, with this psalm was about 15 years ago. I was a junior at KU, went on a camping trip to Colorado that was led by Scott Ketrow. I know many of you know him. At that time, he was the campus director with Campus Crusade here, and currently he's one of the missionaries of our church over in Italy. But we went on this uh, camping trip to Colorado, and one of the mornings in particular, we decided to get up in that morning and spend some time in the Word together, just the group of guys. And the way we do that is just some of the guys would share some of their favorite verses of the scriptures. I remember one guy in particular, it was, a friend's of, it was a friend of Scott's, also on staff with Crusade, that began to quote from Psalm 19, this very psalm, and it was a profound and memorable moment as creation all around us in Colorado was screaming out of the glory of God along with this verse of Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 has become my Colorado trip go-to psalm. And indeed, uh, just a month ago, my family, we had the opportunity to go to Colorado for a little vacation. And so I was really excited to give my family the same experience of this psalm that I had about 15 years earlier. So with the mountains in the background, overlooking a lake on a, pure, on a beautiful, sunny day, I began to read to my family from Psalm 19. And before Tiffany and I even knew what hit us, Peyton began asking biblical and theological questions that I was not equipped to handle. (laughs) Quentin started chasing bugs and reptiles. Paige, my four-year-old, had to go potty, of course. 
And Ty, our fourthborn, I'm not even sure because he's the fourthborn and we easily lose track of him. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, we did not exactly that morning lay hold of the truths of the scriptures, of what Psalm 19 had to offer us. In fact, that devotion ended something along the lines of, okay, I think we've had enough of this. Which is rather unfortunate because this Psalm of David has so much to offer us, so much that we can lay hold of. And I trust that you will be more attentive than my children were that morning. The Psalms, we must understand, they were never intended as just a private prayer journal of the psalmist. But rather, they have always been intended not just for the individual, but for the church. The Psalms are, are, God, the Psalms are for God's people in all circumstances and in all times. So a question we need to ask as we come to the Psalms is, why do we need this particular Psalm? Why did God see to it that it's in our Bible, thus in our worship together? And this is a question we'll come back to as we make our way through Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis calls Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And as we see, as we will see, this this psalm combines beautiful poetry along with the clearest summary of the doctrine of revelation that can be found in the Old Testament. And when I say doctrine of revelation, what I mean is this, that the first six verses of this psalm speak of the glory of creation which reveals God. We call this general revelation, meaning that God has clearly revealed to all mankind that he exists. Creation We could say it this way. Creation is his wordless... uh, Creation is his wordless revelation of himself. In the next section, verses 7 through 11, they speak of the glory of God's special revelation. In special revelation, we understand this as his written revelation. It's the scriptures. So God has gone beyond general revelation for his people and revealed himself through the scriptures in a way that we understand that he is the one true God and that he is the savior of sinners through Jesus Christ. And then the end of the psalm, verses 12 through 14, are a right response of a worshiper to the beauty of God's revelation in creation and in the scriptures. So verses 1 through 6 tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and they do this in a few ways. They declare his glory continuously, and they declare it universally. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the heavens declare God's glory continuously. They pour out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. They tell us that the heavens, which we understand to be all the created objects, the sun, the moon, and the stars that we see within the sky. They proclaim his handiwork day after day, night after night. They pour forth speech. They reveal knowledge about God. In other words, if we have ears to hear, creation is never silent about God. In verses 5 and 6, David highlights the sun and personifies it as a stately bridegroom and as a strong man. It rises from one end of the heavens and goes to the other end of the heavens, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And this is significant in that the sun proclaims continuously the extent of God's rule over creation. As nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, so nothing is hidden from God's rule. And the question that we're left as we look at the sun is, 
If the Son is that powerful, then how much more powerful is the Son's creator? The heavens also declare that God's glory is universal. It's revealed to all mankind throughout the earth. In verses 3 and 4, verse 3 says, There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. These particular verses are quoted by Paul in Romans 10, verse 18. In fact, if you could turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 18. Here, Paul is quoting from Psalm 19 to establish that all people, especially God's chosen people, the Israelites, have heard the message of God's glory in creation. But let's pick up, before, before the quotation 18, let's pick up in verse 13. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, But how are they that call on him in whom they have not believed? Or, or how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And to make the point, skip down to verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to, the, to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The voice that has gone out to all the earth is the voice of the heavens crying out that there is only one God worthy of all praise. In all glory. It is the Lord who created all. Paul also speaks of the reality of the glory of God in creation in Romans 1. If you can flip over to Romans 1. And specifically Romans 1 and verse 18. More than likely, Psalm 19 would have been in Paul's mind and underlies the argument of Psalm 1, or, or excuse me, of Romans 1. Now, I can't necessarily prove that since Paul isn't here to validate that, but I would bet that this is definitely the case. Romans 1, 18 through 23 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And by the truth they suppress... Pause for a second from the reading. They suppress the truth. The truth is the reality that God exists clearly from Scripture. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they did not know God, they did not honor, or for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Pre creation proclaims God's eternal power and divine nature, which clearly from Romans 1, we know that leaves men without excuse for not bowing their hearts and their knees to the Creator. So how clearly does creation proclaim His glory? The best answer I've heard to this question came from our high school graduates on our recent trip a month ago to Romania. 
The, on the Romania trip, my main role, uh, one main role, and that is to prepare our high school graduates for college. The secondary role is to keep them from dying on that trip as best I can. <laughs> of the talks that I give on that trip, my favorite one is the Psalm 19 talk. It's a talk where we climb up on the mountain, which is more like an intense hill. It would be equivalent of traveling from Allen Fieldhouse, hiking up to the Jayhawk bookstore at the top of the hill. Only once you get up there, the difference is you can see for miles and miles in every direction. And what you see are mountains in the distance overlooking a village and with green fields as far as the eyes can see. It's truly a beautiful place to be. And together we read Psalm 19. And then I asked the question, what does God's creation cry out and reveal about him? And I want to read their full list of answers because I believe it exalts God. But also, I believe it's a blessing to us that these are the answers from the youth that have been raised in our church. To the question, what does God's creation cry out and reveal about him? They said that God is creative, huge, loving, all-powerful, detailed, indescribable, humorous. And they backed up humorous by the reality of funny-looking animals. Peaceful beautiful, all-present, hopeful, and they backed up that with the reality of the seasons of life, the seasons that change in life and new life that comes to us, inspiring, comforting, radiant, active, balanced, and they backed up balance with the reality that we have everything we need on this earth for life, uncontainable, especially when it comes to the wind and the sun, unpredictable, Glorious, praiseworthy, caring, intentional, and magnificent. Isn't that a great list? This does a couple things for me. Indeed, it shows, it exalts the reality that God is, he definitely exists, and that he's powerful. But there's also another spin that we could put on this, and that is that creation assures us that it's going to be okay. On a personal, there are many times when I am stressed out that what I find myself doing is I'll look up at the clouds. And it's that time as I see the clouds, I realize it's going to be okay for a couple reasons. One, the clouds remind me that Jesus will indeed return. At some point, he will indeed return, and everything's going to be okay. But even until he returns, even though life in so many ways and with so many trials is so difficult... The reality of the clouds and the things that we see in creation show us that God is good and that he is powerful. And then indeed, things are going to be okay in the end. doesn't mean that our troubles go away, but we can understand God's goodness and his power that things will be okay. And indeed, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, so we serve a Lord that upholds the universe by the word of his power tells me that he is big enough to handle the tough stuff. It will be okay in the end. But I want to go back for a second to the Romania trip. On the mountain that day, my main goal was actually not to discuss the beauty of creation. My main goal was to show that what the heart of the psalm is, and namely, it is the beauty of God's law. There's a key connection in this psalm that we have to be able to lay hold of. It's that God created both his general revelation, in other words, creation, 
but also his special revelation in the scriptures to be beautiful and glorious to us. But from our perspective, this is not always the case, is it? The Bible may not always seem beautiful and glorious. Sometimes it may seem boring. Sometimes it may seem to be silent to us. At other times it may feel as if it is more of a burden. But we have to understand that this isn't David's perspective and it's certainly not God's perspective. Look at David's statement in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And I want to stop there just for a second. The law of the Lord is perfect. By law, or the Hebrew translation, or the translation to us is law, the Hebrew word would be Torah. It's the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. We must understand that the law does not merely refer to the moral commandments, like the law of Moses, but rather it refers to all of the Old Testament scriptures. I think this is important because in many Christian circles, the Old, uh, the Old Testament, and especially the law, gets a bad rap as if it's just a list of irrelevant, or not a, irrelevant do's and don'ts and demands. But the law, properly understood, reflects the nature of its author. The law, properly understood, yes, it contains expectations, it contains commands, it it contains warnings, but along with that, it contains wonderful promises. It contains the revelation of God's grace and mercy to his people. If we reflect just for a second on the Ten Commandments, that is obviously the law. But just prior to the statement of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 2, here's the statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The commandments of the scriptures were never meant to enslave us. But rather, if we follow them, they free us from the slavery of our sin. That is the heart of God. It's not to enslave us. It is to free us. And we see in Psalm 19, the poetic symmetry of verses, nine through, or verses 7 through 9. It's very precise. Each begins with a different aspect or a different term for God's will. And then it goes on to describe what it is and the benefit that we receive from it. Verses 7 through 9 say this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In other words, we are to continually return to be refreshed. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And we need wisdom because we are prone to wander and go in our, towards our own sinful inclinations. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord bring true and lasting joy to the heart, to those that seek to give their life to observing them. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. The scriptures declare in more places the ways in which the, the Lord and the law enlightens our eyes. In Psalm 119.18, the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law. And further in that psalm, in verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And by fear of the Lord, we need to understand that as the revealed way in which God is to be humbly worshipped 
The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. And finally, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. As one commentator put it, together these terms show the practical purpose of God's revelation of the scriptures, and that is to bring God's will to bear on the hearer and invoke intelligent reverence, well-founded trust, and detailed obedience. Verse 10 tells us the law of God is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. There's a question for us to consider here, and I stole this from Bill. Bill asked a question. It had to have been at least a year ago. Some of you might remember this question. I'm just going to paraphrase it, but it stuck in my mind as I was reading through this psalm. The question that goes along these lines. If we were stranded on a desert island and you came across a Bible and gold, which would you be more excited about? And the answer cannot be gold so that I can buy a lot of Bibles. Island doesn't have a store. Which would you be more excited about? If you wrestle over this question even for a minute, are you convinced, as David is, that the law of the Lord is perfect? It's all we need. Are we convinced that being rich in godly character beats being rich in anything else? Verse 11 goes on to show us the dual nature of the scriptures. They warn us. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The scriptures warn us against the destructiveness of our sin, and they encourage us in that in keeping God's will, there is great reward. I guess the question here would be, do our lives show that we are convinced that obedience to God's will in all areas of our life, our great reward. Do our lives show that we really trust that this is our great reward? I believe it's good and appropriate for us to test ourselves against the statements in verses 7 through 10. Are Are we convinced that the scriptures will revive our soul no matter what the circumstances? Are we growing in godly wisdom and having our eyes enlightened through consistent time spent in the Word? Are we convinced that the Scriptures rejoice the heart? Or are we quick to run to other substitutes? Do we honor the Bible as the one book that is altogether righteous and enduring forever? Do we have an increasing desire to invest time and energy in the Word? Oftentimes, college students will say something along the lines of, yeah, you know, I really do need to spend more time in the Word. And I finally learned to ask a follow-up question of that. I'll say, okay, then today, how will your schedule reflect your conviction that you need to spend more time in the Word? It's easy to say, yes, I need to, but the reality is there has to be action involved for us to really take hold of the Word. For me personally, uh, just recently I uh, picked up... I realized I was not reading as much scripture. I was preparing for things for college ministry, but not necessarily reading for my own benefit. So I picked up a daily read through the plan. It's been great. I actually picked it up a couple months ago. So I started with 1 Kings as opposed to Genesis. So I've skipped a bunch of books, but it's better late than never. And maybe this might be 
something that would help to stay in the Word. And also, we're not meant to go this alone necessarily. The uh, community of God's people that center on the Word is a powerful thing. I will say the Monday morning Bible study that I'm part of with the guys in this church absolutely breathe life into me. The, we have abundant options. The question becomes, are we willing to tweak our schedule that reflects our convictions that the law of the Lord is perfect? As we move on to verses 12 through 14, I want to come back to an, ish, to an image in verse 6 that helps to frame this whole psalm together. It's the image of the sun, and sun meaning S-U-N, and the reality that nothing is hidden from its heat. I believe there's a subtle but an extremely significant connection, a link between the sun in verses 5 and 6 and the law in 7 through 11. And C.S. Lewis stated the connection this way, The searching and cleansing sun becomes an image of the searching and cleansing law. As David has felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempts to hide from it, so he feels the law searching out all the hidden places of his soul. Just as nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, so nothing is hidden from God. This moves David to the proper response of a worshiper. David goes from praise and adoration of God as he sees him in creation and his word. And he turns to confession as he reflects on the law. Because in the law, he does see the beauty of God's revealed will. But also the law shows us, it points us to the fact that we fall short of the law. We fall short in our obedience. So David recognizes his sin. We see this in verse 12. He prays, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He prays for the forgiveness of hidden sins. In other words, many of the sins that he's not even aware that he is committing. And in verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Verse 13 is a plea for protection and strength against his presumptuous or willful sins. And this is a great prayer for us. And even David, the one the scriptures say was a man after God's own heart, he wrestled with presumptuous sins that were fighting to rule over him, as we do. So it's a great prayer for us. So what kind of confidence does David have that God will accept him and protect him? What kind of confidence do we have? Our view of God and how he deals with us is critical. And by way of illustration of this, uh, I'll go back to when I was 16 years old. My first job that I had during the summer was working in a warehouse. The problem with this job is I was working with three of my high school buddies. And together, we were not exactly the most mature group of 16-year-olds. I would have to say that our work ethic suffered just a bit on that job. And this tended to frustrate the omnipresent warehouse manager that was always hovering over us. He was this tall, skinny guy who was dead set on seeing that we would actually work while we were on the clock. It's an amazing concept. Some of our favorites, what you have to understand about this warehouse is it was a place where essentially we made boxes and stuffed boxes full of things that I can't even remember. 
And so in this warehouse, wall to wall, are boxes, and they're stacked up on shelves from floor all the way to the ceiling. And some of our favorite pastimes included seeing which of us could actually punch cleanly through a box all the way to the other end. Not, not exactly mature, I understand. The other pastime would be climbing up on the shelves to the top so that we could hide from the ever-present manager of the warehouse. Uh, yeah, I realize at this point, yeah, um, Teenagers probably should stop listening at this point. Uh, but the, ma- the warehouse manager was always there to foil our plans. It was amazing. Anytime one of us would punch through a box, before we could even remove it, he was coming around the corner right then, and he'd look at us. He'd shake his head. He'd go, oh, punching through a box, huh? I'm going to have to write you up. And he'd whip out his black book, and he'd write something down. And so I'm ashamed to say that that happened repeated times for our group. And so we decided if we can't fool them on the ground, we'll take to the air. And so that's when we decided one day that we would just climb up to the top of the rafters so that we could hide out. And even that was amazing. We're up there, silent as we can be. And all of a sudden, he appeared coming around a corner. It was like a horror movie. You could hear a pin drop as we're looking down. And all of a sudden, he's walking and he stops. It's like he had a sixth sense. His eyes just flowed up, boom, right to us. We're busted again. It's like, okay, climbing the rafters. I'm going to have to report you. And he gets out his black book, and so we're pleading for mercy. No mercy. No mercy whatsoever. So this continued to happen throughout the summer for us. There was nothing hidden from the warehouse manager. The reason I share this is sometimes I think we can view God like the warehouse manager. He's hiding around every corner, just waiting, to, just waiting until we mess up, always there, to squash our fun and write us up in his black book, keeping track of our bad deeds. Maybe that seems like an exaggeration, but maybe for some in this room, that really is the view of God. But it's interesting in this psalm to note what, how David views God, how he recognizes God. David refers in verse 1 to God as, in the Hebrew, El, which is the most generic term you can use for God. It's very fitting for the God of creation, a very general term. But then in verses 7 through 14, seven times David uses the word Yahweh, which is translated in our Bibles as Lord. This is God's personal name, his revealed name. We see his name that he revealed in Exodus chapter 3, to Moses, but also Exodus 34, which speaks of God as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And at the end of this psalm, in verse 14, David prays, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David here prays, that he will be acceptable to his Lord, his rock, and his redeemer. And it's a beautiful ending because we see here that David could look forward in faith and trust to a redeemer. David was not coming before God as his judge, as his accuser, but rather he was coming to God as his refuge. And from our vantage point, we can look back to the cross and see the faithfulness of the redeemer knowing that because of Jesus, because of his blood, it has covered our hidden sins 
as well as our presumptuous sins. And like David, we must continually look to Christ for the power and strength to resist the presumptuous sins that seek to take control in our lives. I asked in the very beginning, so why do we need this psalm? Why did God see fit to put Psalm 19 in our Bibles for, the, for us to be able to use and worship together? And from my perspective, at least three main things. It's here because our hearts and, mar- our hearts and minds desperately need to get caught up in the reality that the heavens declare the glory and the beauty of God. But even more than that, our hearts and minds need to desperately grab hold of the reality that God's law is perfect for us. It's beautiful. It's glorious. That is the way we are to treat it. It is perfect to revive our thirsty souls. And the third reason, at least, that God puts Psalm 19 in the scriptures for us is that it should move the worshiper as it moved David to gratitude and obedience. Gratitude that the Redeemer would cover his sins. And because of that gratitude, it should move us towards obedience of seeking to truly live our lives in light of his law that is perfect for us. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise you for your creation, that it reveals your very glory. We praise you also the way your creation pours out speech. It reveals knowledge about you, that it is continuous, Lord, and that it goes throughout the earth, that we, are, we have no excuse for not bowing our hearts and our knees to you. Thank you that you've revealed yourself clearly. And even more than that, for us, your people, Lord, we praise you that you have given us your word that it revives our very soul. And thank you that it is strong enough to make us wise. It rejoices our heart. It does so much. Lord, we praise you for your word. I pray that we would be quick to grab hold, to lay hold of it, to change our schedules or whatever may hinder us from really gravitating towards it. And Lord, finally, we praise you. We thank you that our sins are covered by Christ. If we are in Christ, our hidden, our presumptuous sins... We're nailed at the cross. We thank you. We praise you for that and ask, along with David, that you would protect us from presumptuous sins, that because of your grace in our life, that it would move us to be true worshipers in you in all areas of our life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, please stand for the benediction. The congregational response to the benediction, as you see in your bulletins, is Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.